out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the musician, engineer and very creative sort. It is the one and only Colin Lloyd Tucker, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life love and poetry and everything else has currently got a new album that's going to become yeah released around may 2023 of rock and roll records or tracks um, which we talk about in this interview so you can find out more information of it later on but uh, do pay attention he's had a most incredible career that you'll find out about so i won't bore you anymore with this little intro just to say that um, yes do take notes I will test you at the end. Make sure you were paying attention. Anyway, after several minutes of interest and back casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Colin, it's over to you. I did. My, my musical awakening was a little, I'm a little bit older, so I was born in 58. Right. Um, and the first thing I remember really striking me was the Beatles' Strawberry Fields Forever, the, the single. And, and I was probably, I don't know, nine or ten years old at the time, maybe nine. Right. And uh, that I knew was something different and very special. That that caught my ear even as a kid, you know. And to this day, the sort of psychedelic 60s, English psychedelic period is still a kind of, you know, where my heart perhaps lies, you know. Yes. But yes, so that was my kind of, that was the thing. I was very aware that I'd like that better than I like Penny Lane. I mean, Penny Lane was lovely as a single, but there was something unusual about Strawberry Fields, something, you know, that I hadn't heard before. And I think a lot of it, I was attracted to the kind of technical side of it, the fact that they played around with the speed and the tight. I, I didn't know then what they were doing, but I knew it was magical. Yes. And I, was, I became very interested in the sort of studio craft thing. So by the time I was a teenager, I wanted desperately to work in the recording studio. Right, yes. And did your, were your parents at all musical? Or did they give you any sort of... There was music in the family. Both my my brother played brass instruments. I learned brass instruments at school, and 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 I learned to read read and write music in my early teens. Um, But uh, there there wasn't a history of music in the family. The only musical instrument, apart from the brass instruments we had in the house, was an old mandolin. Right. Love that. I managed to. I, I could soon tune that into an open chord and drone away quite happily on that. And put words I've written on top of that. So that there were early efforts at songwriting. This was very early on before I left school. You know. Yes, absolutely. Well, I had that ambition. I knew the way in would be via the recording studios. I knew that I had an interest in that side of things. Right. Um, so in those days, you could leave school at fifteen years old. So I did that. Got out of there and and wrote a. Um, around all the London studios. In those days, there was like loads of London studios. So I started at Letter A and just started writing to all of them, saying, I'll do anything. I'll be the T-boy, whatever, you know. And I got as far as D, and I got a job with a mu- music publishers called DeWolf Limited, who were based in Soho in London. Yeah. Publishers of what you might call incidental background music, music for the test card, that kind of thing. You know, film music, occasionally film music. And they did library albums, so there was, you know, a big library of music that film directors could come in and choose their music from. Um, so I started working there, and I had a small in-house studio in the, in the, on the premises. It was eight-track studio at the time. And uh, as I worked my way up, I, obviously I made the tea to start with, um, eventually became an assistant engineer, and then eventually an engineer, 
and I got the keys to the studio, which meant I could stay behind when everyone else had gone home and work on my own music in the evening and on weekends. Yeah. So when it started seriously for me, I did an album completely on my own, Toy Box, where I played everything on it, you know, and um, I just overdubbed on myself. Um, which that, although I did that in the late seventies, it didn't go out for about nineteen eighty-two, I think. That's uh, right. Yes. Yeah. Oh, so did you did you have any mentoring? Did you have any kind of people who kind of guided you in various directions? Because I have spoke to quite a few producers, and I I wish I could know. It was a while back. A yes. guy who worked on the very early Pink um, Deep Purple album. And oh, I remember, right. I remember him telling me that the sound of I think it was Fireball that had this kind of whooshing sound. He yes. recorded some air conditioning unit. Being yeah. sort of started, and they took that and then put that onto the first part of that record, and you'll hear this, whoosh, and it was like, yes, that was me as a very young kid, as this engineer on Deep Purple, and I thought, oh, and there's great, and every and everyone has the same kind of story of you know like making tea, and then one day, you know, oh, you're the only one left in the studio. By the way, you know, we got David Bowie and Mick Jagger coming in to record a single. Could you know, would you be able to sort of handle it, or you know, working with some famous producers from the seven eighties, uh, well, seventies, like Alan Wynn Stanley and um, oh yes, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Clive, and and sort of them being too drunk to do much. So they said, look, kid, you know, could you just hang in there while they lay on the sofa drinking a bit? And did so well, did you very much that period in the studio? <laughs> there was a lot of that going on. I I mean, I didn't have mentors as such, but I think what you do is you, you, well, you're you watching everything that goes on and sort of making mental notes all the time. And at any time I had any time on my own, I would practice making up tape loops and just experimenting, really. I just said to the guy, record collector earlier today, that I was like a kid in the, in the candy shop, you know, because it was like having a huge toy to play with, you know. And uh, so a lot of it was self, you know, discovering for myself how to do things. But we did have bands in, and I remember the pretty things coming in um, when I was a tape off. And again, that was my first time I witnessed rock and roll debauchery and sort of general, the whole rock and roll thing, which I thought was great. And I really <laughs> enjoyed it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, yes. It was quite an eye opener. Um, so they were the first sort of rock and roll band I had direct contact with. And they were very kind to me and they would help me, advise me, because I often got left on my own with them. You know, Like I say, I was inexperienced, but were really helpful. And, yeah. uh, and Kate Bush was a very early session as well. So right. her demo is there. Um, yeah. And again, very nice people. So they were encouraging and sort of let me sort of mess around and get on with it and try things out. Uh, there was that was one thing about that studio. There was never any one saying, "Oh, don't do that. It's not the way we do it." They kind of let you find out for yourself and and get on with it, which for me was invaluable. And I still use the same kind of techniques today. I still explore, try doing things in a different way rather than you know the same old process. Yes. Just for your own interest for a start, because it can get a little bit tiresome just doing everything the way you know how in inverted commas, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And, and obviously in every decade, I suppose, as a producer, there's always this new equipment coming in, which exactly is kind of new technologies. Yeah, that's right. You know, and I love all that. Obviously, I've got, you know, I've kept up with all that. You know, although I'm a tape head, you know. That's yeah, what's always interesting, I remember doing an interview with Tony DeFries, who, you know, managed David oh, yeah. Bowie and Main Man, but he was talking about working with Mickey Most. The one thing I noticed that every, a lot of producers, not everyone, yeah. but some producers have their, you know, five year zeitgeist moment, don't they, where they, they've got the sound and you think, yes, it's Mickey Most. And then it's like, oh, actually, yes, Mickey, that's right. He quite. Was... Then it's in the 80s, it's Trevor Horn. Oh, we need the Trevor Horn sound. And then it's yeah, like, exactly. 
these are passing phases though really you know it just so happens if your sound happens to be yeah, you know, be the one that's the big sound of the time. And the trouble is it works both ways because then you just get remembered for that sound. And Trevor Horn's done a lot, for example, has done a lot of other things apart from what he's well known for, which is that big, you know, sort of sound, you know, the big snare drum and all that. Yeah. Um, it's a bit like being an actor and getting typecast, I guess, in a way, you know. Yes. So a lot of people end up fighting the rest of their careers against that kind of perception of themselves, you know. We always have, yeah. Yes, we absolutely. I mean, John Boy, we we just couldn't accept he he was yeah. you know, he was the Waltons. He couldn't be in anything else, could he? That no, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No one was, wants to end up in that situation. No, you? it was just too much. He just felt too weird when you you can't <laughs> un, you don't understand those things when you're young. Like, but you're John Boy in the Waltons. You can't suddenly play another character. No, exactly. Yeah. What are yeah. you doing? So you you know you grew up during that, especially that sort of you mentioned the Strawberry Field, but in the in the 70s was your decade of you know like the yes. you know I mentioned the glam period but then you had the prog rock period and then you know progressive kind of experimental folk music as well like right. and I kind of went through all that I mean uh yeah I love the whole glam thing now I mean I got to know the Bowie funny you mentioned Tony DeFries because I knew all those people I knew the main man crowd um through my first album when I made Toy Box um the Bowie people love that album and so I was kind of, in, you know, in a way of taking into the fold, as it were. Um, so I hung out with those people, stayed, stayed in a lot of their flats in London. And they were great. And uh, it was through um, Tony DeFries' girlfriend at the time that I got a deal with a guy called Tony Calder, who was um, an ex-Beatles publicist who ran the immediate label with Andy Lugo from Stones Management. Um, so I signed a management deal with him. So that kind of got me right into the 80s. And I started recording with John Porter, who went on to produce the Smiths and all that stuff. Oh, John Porter, you, you would you would love this because I didn't interview John Porter, but I was oh. I was I was very obsessed about this because I come from East Anglia. And um, I slightly was too old for the fairs and festivals of the early 70s, the Barsham yes. fairs, the Elgin yeah, yeah. Barsham fairs. And there was a couple called James Lascelles and Mike Story, who did an album, called themselves Cuckoo. And they did an album called Iona. And they did a track called The Last Barsham Fair. And I was looking at this religiously and thought, yeah. John Porter. And then I thought, oh, is that the same as who did The Smiths, who right. who, who saved the first Smiths album when it was a, like, have you, right. got, have you got a weekend and we've only got £500 to sort it out? But yeah, he'd also worked on... Happened, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Me and John are still very close friends. I'm seeing him in a couple of weeks' time. Um, oh, because John went to America and ended up sort of producing all his heroes in the end, didn't he? BB uh, King and John Lee Hooker. And well, he worked, he started with Roxy Music, didn't he? Started with Roxy, that's right. And he produced uh, Brian's Brian Ferry's first solo album, uh, first couple of things actually. These foolish things and whatever to follow. Anytime, any place. Yeah, um, that's right. Then he thought he'd made it. Went to live in Morocco for a while and all of that, and then. Um, Eventually came back and carried on. Yeah, yes. found the Smiths. Yes, the Smiths. So I mean, you know, he he'd done a lot of other stuff before beside the Smiths. But he had a, yeah, it was a great be story because yeah. <laughs> he, he obviously, you know, I think it was um, Jeff Travis had sort of thought yeah. this. I can't remember who the the guy was that had produced the album, but wasn't very good. And it was like um, I think Grant Showbiz or somebody like that. And yeah, then yeah, yeah. he gave it. You know, they just had some cash and he went away. So did you? Were you working on that particular? um really you know mix at the time uh no i didn't work on that on the smith's record i was around i was in the studio at the time but i had been doing a record on my own with john just prior to that 
Um, and he happened to say during the session, oh, I've got this band next week, and you know, they pop in and say hello, you know, and that was they were doing this charming man. Right. So that's when I first met them. Um, but yes, John had done a record called Head with me. Um, and he hadn't done anything since Brian Ferry at that point. I mean, apart from go to Morocco, <laughs> he hadn't done very <laughs> anything much at all. So it was a way him working with me was a way that he got back into it, you know, and uh, and we did this sitar-laden kind of psychedelic dance number, um, which was great, called Head. And uh, and he did the album and uh, and has worked with me on and off over the years, you know. But, uh, yes. And just yeah. going going back slightly to the psychedelic kind of folk period, did you were were bands like Comus quite in, important to your life? I just well, wondered... to me, I mean, I was aware of them. But you know, a lot of those things, they weren't that important. I mean, I found out more about those bands since, funny enough. Um, so you were sort of aware of all these things. But yeah, I mean, no, I mean, when I was younger, I think I was, you know, I suppose it was hard as I thought, like we didn't have Spotify or anything like that. I would go to a record shop and I'd buy something just because I like look at the cover, you know, like the secondhand albums shop, you know. Um, so I discovered a lot of music that way. And I mean, a lot of things I still own and love to this day. I, to this day, you know, a lot of psychedelic albums. Yes. Um, but yeah, so that, yeah, that's good. So idea. when, so during, as, as the 70s were sort of trucking on quite happily and, and obviously, you know, the music was coming each way. I know yeah. when, you know, I did an interview with Chris Bedding and he he sort of worked on like a billion records really, yes. which all, a lot became classics, but then he, then he helped produce the Sex Pistols kind of, you that's know, right, early yeah. demo, didn't he? But yeah, he did. What, right. what, did you have a similar thing then? Because I did you know, what was the Kate Bush kind of connection? And, and That was through the studio. They'd actually booked the studio that I was talking about them, that was in the music publishers building in Soho, which was a tiny little late track studio. And they had booked that to just to demo some songs for EMI. Right. They previously done a few, well, I think David Gilmore recorded Kate playing the piano and done some solo demos. Yes. But it was this was like the first thing they wanted to do. It was actually booked as the Katie Bush band. Nice, and, um, you know, it was great. Yeah. And, uh, her brother Paddy was obviously a big part of that. Um, who I also worked with, you know, on my solo stuff. Yeah. Um, but that was the first time I met them. So Kate, we were both me and Kate were the same age. So we were both sixteen, I think, sixteen or seventeen at the time. Nice. And uh, and it was great. You know, I mean, I did. They did it. They recorded it at night, which was unusual in those in that particular studio. Um, and no one else wanted to do the session because they didn't want to work. So I said, oh, I'll have, you know, I'll have a go. I'll do it. And uh, they were great. And they were really nice people. And we were up most of the night doing this, this music. And in the morning, I played it to my work colleagues when they arrived for work. And they thought I had it on the wrong speed because my voice was so high. <laughs> I said, have you done something funny with the voice? I said, no, she sings like that. Because <laughs> at the time, it was quite shocking. You just hadn't heard anyone singing rock music like that before. You know? Yes. Yeah. So what? So what tracks did you record with her? Uh, I remember "Rolling the Ball" was one of them. Um, the wedding list one, James. All, all songs that ended up on the first album. The, the kick inside. Yes. Yeah. And I recorded it with her later on, but that was the first thing we ever did. Yeah. I, oh. I ended up singing on her records later. Yeah. God, that's amazing. So, so when sort of as were you still in the the studio working for this company during that kind of then that transition with the punk period that sort of yeah sort of came. I was. On? Yes, that's right. I was. And uh, I had a band that we were playing London regularly called Plain Characters, who, who quite, we did very well. We were popular with John Peel, so we got sessions and uh, he played our records. But we played the Mark, we played with the Open Anchor, Marky, all the usual kind of London gigs, you know. 
um, that was like a high energy funky kind of band you know um, but at the same time I was working in the studio with Matt Johnson who became the the mm -hmm. uh, he was also employed by the same company a couple, a couple of years younger than me so he was a new t-boy and uh, so he I mean he gets drifted in one day when I was working in there and kind of joined in so then we formed a band that like a studio band called the gadgets right three albums as the gadgets um uh, before we then kind of split away and formed what became the, the yes my god that's you you've what you've really sort of bounced around here haven't you uh, yeah <laughs> so with the gadgets this is with paddy jj brace john hyde yourself and matt uh well no the original gadgets was just myself john hyde and matt the other two guys were um when, when me and matt left it the, the, I think John Hyde carried on and got in Paddy and um, the other guy. I don't really know them. I don't think I've even heard those albums. They carried on putting the stuff out as the gadgets, didn't they? Yes. So did you did you release the first two albums of the gadgets? Um, first three, in fact. Yeah. Yeah. Love Curiosity, then um, Gadgetry, and then Blue Album. Were they yeah, the three that have got me and Matt on them? Yeah. Right, blimey, and, and Final Solution, what's... Final, Final Solution was, a, they were gig promoters, um, but they wanted to start a label, they used to put on Killing Joke gigs and things like that, and, uh, but they said one day, oh, we'd quite like to start a label, and I said, well, if you want to start a label, me and Matt have been doing this stuff, do you want to hear it? You know? And they said, great, and they heard it and said, yeah, we want to put that out. So we were their first release on that label. Right, right. And that's yes. And did it was who was George Peckham? Did he Walkie oh, Prime Cuts? Yes. Must have seen that written on the inside scroll of uh, records. Sometimes if you look at a vinyl record, you, you're particularly from that period, yeah. you see the words a Porky Prime Cut thing. That's George Peckham. He's a cutting engineer. Um he used to work for Apple for the Beatles. Um, but he then became independent, had his own cutting rooms, and he cut all those gadgets. In fact, all my early vinyl albums, he cut all of those. Yeah. Lovely man. Yes. And how did you, I mean, at that period, it was quite an interesting time in music because, you know, 79 Thatcher gets in. We had the, yeah. you know, the Falkland War. We had the miners' crisis. You know, we have. Tell me about it, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> the greatest time. Yeah. <laughs> it, was a, it was a difficult time, wasn't it? It really um, was. And this is, you know, um, yeah. And then obviously we had, you know, Greenham Common, so we think we're going to get newt. So it was kind yeah. of that kind of the post-punk period. What was it like as a musician trying to sort of kind of sort of fit in anywhere? It was a dark, I would call it a kind of dark period. I, you know, it, it felt dark. The, the atmosphere was dark, was heavy, you know, which, you know, for creative for creativity, that's not necessarily a bad thing, you know, to have something to kick against a little bit, you know. Yes. And, um, yes. I mean, I think in a way, that's why you had so many bands springing up at that time. There was a lot of emotion, a lot of upset, really. You know. Yeah, because because for me, I mean, you know, on a very simplistic level, I mean, there was a lot of different tribes during that period, especially, and everyone had to fit one tribe. You couldn't sort of, you know, you couldn't be a bit sort of flirtatious and be in more than one tribe, could you? No, Heaven no although I tried. <laughs> it's I quite because nice. I still had my psychedelic side, and of course that wasn't very cool during the punk years at all. No, but my toy box album out, which is a kind of airy fairy psychedelic effort. Um, you know, the Sex Pistols and the Clash were sort of happening. You know, and I was doing that kind of stuff live, but you know, I still had this side. And to me, it didn't matter. Okay, it's a psychedelic record, but yeah, it 
was was completely against the kind of grain of the day. I mean, yes. it doesn't seem too shocking now, but at the time it was like, what are you putting that out for? You know? <laughs> but, yeah. it, kind of, it, it seems ridiculous you had to sort of hate something because it wasn't quite the right thing. Exactly, but... yeah. I mean, that's probably why that album sat in the cupboard for as long as it did, because, you know. Uh, was that, which album was that you mentioned? That was Toy Box. That was the, Toy, first, yeah. that was the first solo effort that I did. But I think what the other thing that I think kind of helped a lot of creativity, bizarrely, was the high unemployment rate and then sort of, you yes. know, all the people signing on and job seekers yeah. allowance and enterprise allowance schemes that that kind of meant that most people didn't think there was anything literally for them. So there was no. like, well, I'm going to sign on because that's what you did. Well, and I'll right. just sponge off the state, not really having an idea of what might happen in the future. But you yeah. know, just just stumbling into things was mostly st stumbling into pubs when it was in you know, a happy hour and you could. Well, that's right. I mean, that, um, everybody I knew was probably you've just summed up at that time. That was probably their situation. I was one of the rare ones that actually, you know, had a job, um, but it wasn't like they didn't really count it as a real job because it was too much fun. But, you know, um, yes. yeah, but I mean, most people I knew were just signing on most most creative people. And that was how, you know, that's what we did. Yes, absolutely. And then, obviously, when you brought out Blue Album, this is the the because the, the Smiths hit in eighty eighty three, which I think is a massive right. moment. But you yeah. signed to Glass Records. Is that David Barker's album? That David Barker. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Who I still work for. I still I, can't, I do. I was talking about mastering the albums. I, I master albums for his label now. So like yes, the vinyl release. But so I've known Dave Barker since that time. You know, so it goes back a long way. Yeah, Glass has been around for a long time now. Yeah, well, I realise that, and, and Cherry Red, you know, I think one of us has mentioned it at least once, but I realise that that period now in the 80s, all these obscure labels and bands are all getting reissued and archived and everyone yeah. wants to do their, you know, triple CD box set with sleeve yeah. notes and everything. I've just done the Young Marble Giants last week. So, <laughs> do you remember them? Do you remember them? Oh, yeah, the final day. It's amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and I've done I, I don't... for them, yeah. Yeah, no, I've done a few L, a few interviews with the main man, which um, no, I can't remember. <laughs> which I've known. Alison Stretton's with the singer, isn't she? And yeah, um, that's right. Who's the main I man? I don't, I don't know his name, but because uh, the tracks I did, Alison isn't on them. It's right, mental, which is a shame because I think she's the main. She to me was the main thing that voice, you know. Yeah, the final but, day is just extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. A great, great records, but uh, amazing. But it's yeah. still that no, it sounded the same as I always did. Yeah. So when, well, how did how did um, yes the gadgets? How did you all did you sort of part company at that with that band during '83? Um, well, as I say, what happened was with the gadgets, me and me and Matt broke away. I think we had an, I think we fell out pretty much with John Hyde, who was the third member, and he carried on the gadgets as we already discussed. Um, but then me and Matt, Matt said to me, I've got an idea, I want to start a band, I'm going to call it The The. And I said, The The what? He said, no, that's it, The The, you know. And I thought, all right, okay. So I did some gigs with him. Um, and he brought in Simon Turner, Simon Fisher Turner, who oh. did all the film soundtracks and uh, that kind of stuff. And we played as a kind of acoustic set, as a three-piece. Yes. Although that was like around that time just post gadgets and before the the proper you know and me and simon went off to record some ambient albums which we did as two women oh my god are you theme. yeah yes uh, so all that was sort of happening so that we, when we weren't doing the the shows we were doing the ambient stuff as the two girls um and this 
all very different kinds of music. But you know, I mean, I love doing. I loved all of it. So it didn't really make any difference. To that, it? Yeah, because I've done an interview with Simon Fisher Turner, which was oh just, right, which was brilliant. And when I was that? He, pardon? When was that? Probably eighteen months ago, quite recently. Oh right. Well, funny, uh, I've done one with him today. <laughs> Shindig. <laughs> oh God, it's oh right, of course, because he he done the most bizarre record for creation, for the creation label, um, Alan McGee's, when he was yeah. working with um, uh, I don't know, a very famous actress who oh, went. Oh, Swindon. Yes, that's yeah, right. And I thought yeah. Alan McGee must have lost a, quite a punt on that one. <laughs> <laughs> it was I'm like. Sure. He could have folded it probably, but yeah. <laughs> it was it was it wasn't a great time with Alan because he had my bloody Valentine, which were making That's their right. classic album, which was not getting released. And frankly, yeah. you had had no idea if it was gonna. Hindsight is marvelous, but at the time, you'd mm. thought, mm, not sure that's mm. good. And then, you know, Simon and Tilda, you know, did this really amazing album, which I thought was like, yeah, yeah. yeah you, oh. you, you're not going to get a lot of cash back on that one, are you? No. Oh, well, that's why I love Simon so much because he will stick his neck out. You know, he doesn't. He doesn't. Yeah, you know, he's like me. He doesn't really. He doesn't pigeonhole music. No. Yeah, it, you know, it can just be a noise, and it's, he loves that as much as he loves a a lute playing a ballad. You know, it's, it yes, makes no difference. It's just music. You know. I know, and I think well, he was the the David Cassidy, wasn't he? I think he was of his day. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was me. So, so how did you, you, why did you and Simon decide to do the this this duo of two the, women? The Fee records. Yes. Well, we wanted to, we knew the kind of record we wanted to make. We wanted to make a kind of ethereal, slightly ambient, instrumental album, basically. Um, so we had that idea. We'd actually started on the music in the studio, and we were discussing how we were going to present it. And I think I think it was Simon that came up. He said, "Well." You know, we could do it as as women. Let's do it as girls. And I said, I thought, oh god, that sounds like a lot of hard work, you know. But then, um, you know, like eventually, I thought, actually, this, that's a really good idea because people, when they hear it, they won't know that it isn't two girls, and they will hear it differently, thinking that it's two French girls rather than thinking it's a couple of guys from London in the studio making, you know, an ambient record. And it worked a treat because um, all the reviews, we didn't tell anyone. It was us, you know, and then we were in the dress up and all the rest of it. And all the reviews said it was amazing because these two poor French girls had had terrible lives, and you know, like now they're making this beautiful music. And of course, we had a big backstory that was all completely made up <laughs> about their tragic youth and all this kind of stuff, and their classical training and all this kind of stuff. And it was a real tear jerking, and uh, and they fell for it hook, like line and sinker. So that was great, reading your reviews, you know, like people thinking it's someone else. And uh, we kept that going for years with two albums before anyone really cottoned on and it was us. Yes, that was, that was a classic. And who were, the, who were the models then that you got for that? It was us, dressed up. Oh, blimey. That is... We even did shows like it. I remember yeah. we played the venue in London, which was quite a big gig at the time. And uh, yeah, and we did, yeah, so we went through the whole rigmarole. We hired wigs, you know, did the whole thing you know and did test photograph sessions and really took took it seriously about you know getting it across with these two girls um and i mean yeah and it, in, that, in that respect it worked really well and the albums i mean that album the first album we did has never been out of print even all these years later it's still pressed up in vinyl still 
Silent and Wisdom. Silence and Wisdom, yes. Yeah, I mean, was that your label that you put that Yeah, on? initially it was. I mean, nowadays they're on, they're, it's been farmed out to various labels that reissue them. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of curious because because James Nice, who lives in this area, Norwich. Oh, yeah, I know, he, yeah. He's he, he was the one who brought out Space and Time in 2016. That's right, yes, yeah, yeah. Yes. That's so right. why, and it just, you know, this is kind of the wibbly-wobbly time warp thing. But yeah. in two, so what happened in 2015? Did you and Simon think, you know, that really good project we could do? Yeah, we just thought that we, well, I think James had said to us about reissuing those first two albums. And so we got involved with reissues of those. And, and, and I mean, we were just discussing it one day and Simon said, well, you know, Perhaps we should do a new album. It has been 40 years or whatever it was since the last one. I said, that would be great to suddenly come up with a new record, you know. So that's how Space and Time came about. And then there was a big discussion whether we had to go through the whole rigmarole of dressing up again and rehiring the wigs. <laughs> and we thought, no, we'll just use old photographs. Yes. <laughs> so the girls are timeless. They never get any older. Yeah, well, that's right. quite nice, isn't it? You know, it's... Yeah. it's, it's, it's was good yeah. and then and one then, since actually for glass as well called shadow farming shadow farming so that's which i think went out last year yeah yeah oh, that's so that is so brilliant my god you're you're so as the going back to the 80s then you brought out toy box was kind of material from your early years and then yeah. mind was was kind of 86 and then head 87 that was on glass records wasn't it it was the first one on glass i did yeah yeah i mean how did you i mean because 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 the 80s which is obviously my my yeah, obsessed, my, my my decade wasn't it so yeah. 80 83 and now i know we've all got to have it haven't <laughs> i know well well bowie and lemmy were both born 1947 and you know whenever they were asked you know that question you know what was your main musical influence both of them said little richard and then it was sure all, you know buddy holly you know, Eddie Cochran, yeah, yeah. elvis you know you you know i think you have that moment i mean obviously you know i suppose that's why david bowie you know as i mentioned was my first single and first love i mean it's it was always there which was quite yeah. lucky and and then yeah. the smiths came along and they were the band that spoke to me as you do you know yeah yeah, yeah. just yeah. just to me and no one else but 87 the smiths break up you know there's that kind of a new wave of 16 to 18 year olds appear and they don't want their you know music that's yeah. been around the block and sure. being yeah. snogged by other people do they yeah. they want their own band they want to discover sure. and also ecstasy comes along you know which is yeah. a kind of a made main major thing and a new musical kind of you know there was the Manchester scene there was also also the Seattle grunge scene that started sure, right. yeah. Yeah. how did you navigate that were you still working in that studio or had you completely I'd, I'd left probably by the mid um mid 80s i'd left the studio because i'd signed a, a, a deal um, a management deal as i mentioned with this guy tony calder but suddenly i found myself on a retainer so i didn't really need to work like in the job anymore so i became full-time and i got a call funny enough from john porter and he said can you come over for lunch so i went over there for lunch and the only other guest was johnny marr who was sitting there and when i walked in they were playing my mind box album listening to that John was playing it to him because John had produced it and uh, Johnny loved it and he invited me up to Manchester so um, on a few occasions I went up and stayed up at his place in Manchester and we worked on loads of material um, of which nothing ever came of it but uh, we were going to form a new band I mean I think Johnny was still sort of on the rebound a bit from the Smiths wondering what to do I'd just signed a deal so I didn't have a lot of time 
but we were kind of, you know, we tried a few things out. I've still probably got the tapes lurking around somewhere. Um, and we had a lot of fun, but we never, no, we never, never went any further than that. Yes. We made friends and stuff. You know. And of course, Johnny then joined the other a little bit later. So yeah. That's right. He becomes a sort Very of... incestuous, the whole thing, wasn't it? Yes, it is. I know. I know. I did read Morrissey's book where, you know, he's he's getting more and more suspicious of Johnny and wondering yeah. what Johnny's up to, isn't he? With <laughs> moments with Brian Ferry and then Matt and yeah, 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 yeah. And, right, and then yeah. Chrissy Hines. I mean, poor of old course, Morrissey. Yeah, that, yeah. Morrissey by this stage is a is a complete mess, isn't he? Of paranoia. Yeah. Total paranoia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. But I guess you've seen all these dynamics of bands and the and yeah. the panic and the worry that they have and. Yeah. You know, did you ever get that experience? You know, the the famous Trogs moment in the studio where you know the band are trying to sort out a drum beat, you know, and the drummer doesn't oh, get what? it, and and then the producers go and you know, and the lead yeah. singer saying, "Sprinkle some fairy dust over yeah, that." Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I do. I love that the, the Trog tapes. I think it's hilarious. But uh, to be honest, I've been either I've been lucky. I've never really had it quite that bad. I mean, there have been times, obviously, when things don't gel. And there have been arguments. It wouldn't be normally not to have the occasional argument. But generally speaking. That's not really the case. I think the secret is with the studio is you just got to keep your cool no matter what's going on. Yeah. And remember, you're just making a pop record, really. It's not, you know, it, you know, so it can blow up so big in your own mind, you know, that it becomes people's entire life and the whole world's going to end if you don't get the tambourine part right or something. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. Sometimes you just have to take a step back and say, look, it's just a record. Come on, let's, you know. Yes. Off. So I've not, fortunately, had any major punch-ups happening in the studio. Yeah. But I may have been, I mean, maybe that's why I didn't want to form a band with Johnny at that time, um, because I just, I didn't really feel like I wanted to be in a band, you know. I didn't, and I was always a studio baby. I didn't really want to be on the road and everything that goes with it, you know. Yeah. I mean, with, with certain musicians that you played with, did you see kind of something quite, were there certain people that you could see something quite special about them? Special and talented. I mean, there are some people their talent does shine out, and it's you know, and it, there is a spark there. But I mean, most professional musicians they can play. Uh, you know, it's something extra rather than just being able to play. I mean, Johnny is a fantastic guitar player, you know, but um, you know, and but he does have a spark, something that other guitar players might not have. Something special that's special to him, and you do notice that in certain people. You notice obviously in Kate Bush, and you know. Um, yes. People like that. But, you know, there's some, something unique about them. It might not necessarily be a technical thing that they can do that other people can't do, but just something about their whole being that they, they give out that is special, you know. Yeah. That but, is, with, but with the creative process, and you probably must have this, do you ever wonder why there are moments where it can line up and it's just like what you've done is amazing and with certain bands you think that's amazing then you hear another record and you think it's all it's the, it's all there but there's nothing that's the kind same. Of... Uh, well if we knew the answer to that one day then that <laughs> we'd have to be having top 10 hits <laughs> that is why i love doing it because it's the mystery i mean sometimes yeah a track can come together so beautifully and you have no memory or any of actually thinking it through and doing a bit this and that and then this and then that after it just seems like magic it just seems to appear and it's like da -da! you know what a nice track you know other times you can spend weeks and weeks and weeks on the track and no matter what you do it's never going to be as good as say the one that was inspired you know yeah so, no. 
I mean, we don't. I mean, I think Paul McCartney might say he doesn't want to know how it works because if he knew how it worked, he'd start thinking about that when he was writing the song. And, the, and that's obviously not the way to approach it, you know. Yes, there you go. I know it's it's just it's, it's nice to have a mystery there. You know, you don't know, you don't understand how it works. mystery and fr the frustration, I guess, isn't it? But did, yeah. so when you did Remarkable, was this a kind of you were the producer? Were you, did you play all the instruments on it? Uh, um, not on that one. No, I had. Um, I think there's a drummer on some of the tracks, and there's a guitar player comes in. Paddy Bush is on it. Kate's brother, who did a lot of the vocals with me and played odd instruments as he does on Kate Bush's albums, such as the didgeridoo or various harps and things like that. So there's a lot of that on there. Yes, because then you fought, you form a band, Bush Tucker, don't you? That's right. That was a bit after that. A bit later. That would have been nineties. Yeah, nineties. That was just me and Paddy with a few guest musicians here and there. Did you what, at that stage? You know, because you had quite. A, you, you're getting quite conceptual in a slightly. Yeah. You know, I mean, were you? Did you ever explore spiritual paths in life? Um, I'm not. No, I have not so much. Well, I have, but usually with the aid of LSD. <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to any kind of organised religion or spiritual uh, teacher. But uh, obviously I experimented a lot with all that when I was younger. And that stayed with me, you know, throughout life. I think anyone who's been through that particular experience, it affects you. Yes. So uh, when you when you sort of came, to, you know, when you and Paddy decided to bring this album out about 893, what was the process? Did you work the material before going in the we, studio? We, we demoed the entire record at Paddy's house yeah, on a little tiny quarter inch tape machine. And we spent weeks, night after night, working out the tracks, working out there. There was quite a lot of programming involved with that. We were using a, a machine called an emulator, which Kate was also using at the time. Um, and so there was quite sort of night after night programming, finding the right feel for certain things. What we were interested in was, funny enough, we'd been looking at trance states we've been watching old footage of people getting into trance states to various rhythms and trying to analyze you know what was happening there how the, how the, the rhythm was inducing the, the trance you know and uh, so that was a big kind of influence on the whole thing but the first yeah. track we did which was a title track skyscraping is a long piece all based around rhythmic pattern supposed to induce a kind of trance basically yes people people were getting i mean there was because i did sort of trip into the new age scene in that sort of period yes. and and people were getting into a lot of dancing you know there was there was a woman called gabrielle roth who used to do the five rhythms and it was these kind oh, of yeah. five five yeah. different states you know from yeah. calm to that's right yes you know chaos to you know and i can't remember the other three but anyway yeah. everyone was doing it and everyone suddenly got yeah. a jimby drum and they started doing drumming groups and it was just it was, was a period of all that wasn't it? i mean we were a bit before then i mean we get you know after that we moved on to different things but yeah um but at the time i don't think anyone was doing that when we first started that. no but then it wasn't forever to make because as i say we made the whole album it's kind of in demo form and then went into the studio and proceeded to fill up 48 tracks of like all this stuff, you know, and uh, I spent months doing it. And what was the, and and you focused a lot on the moon at this stage, didn't you? Was this? Was I've always this... about the moon, but then isn't that a traditional songwriter's kind of thing anyway? Uh, you know, if you look back, there have always been songs about the moon, haven't there? But uh, yes, I think yes. I did the song called "Look to the Moon," which I then revisited later. Yes, I just, I, yeah, well, I suppose as a child and very young in the 60s, late 60s, you know, 
very you know being a bit amazed looking at the moon thinking oh someone's going to go to the moon soon and, and... also i lived on a, on a little private island for years and of course i would complete my whole life was organized around the tides and obviously the moon and the tides and their relationship always fascinated me yes. so i've always had a bit of a moon thing but i've also had a sort of moon in june sort of thing of like those old songs that i always loved you know it's yes. a, yeah. Did you did you ever did you ever get into because I knew a few kind of older hippies than me and they got all into you know um, all gone energy and stuff like that and they yeah I never I know people that go into that but you know I didn't go down that path. Yes, well mm. I know there's a lot of paths you could go into, especially on the LSD anyway. So well, exactly. I think all mine went into the music and the songwriting, but I could have easily joined some sort of bagwati kind of you know whatever oh god the the orange people the orange people wasn't the guy talking to cherry red that wasn't ian from cherry red he's i think he's a bagwati isn't he yeah someone you know you felt a bit left out if you hadn't joined a cult somehow so <laughs> <laughs> there, was gallant, a, there was a lot of competitive spiritual work going on you know you know you, yeah of course you, yeah, yeah, you, yeah you felt a bit inadequate if you didn't you know but anyway look the album the album that really springs up again i don't know who was doing the pr was songs of love life and liquid which has mm. this most amazing cover on it so just tell us about the cover because that's that mm. in itself is quite extraordinary which reminds me of a friend of mine who Look very similar, and I thought, God, Graham's made an album, and I thought, no, that's Colin Lloyd. <laughs> so how did it well, was, well was actually, it? this is, follows on nicely because that was taken outside my house on the island, right? On the, the islands, actually, in East Anglia, it's in North Essex. Um, it's a little private island, so you might, you wouldn't know it was there unless you, you know. Um, and it's a tidal island, so you can only get on and off low tide. Yes, you go by boat at high tide. Yeah, that's outside my house in the morning. My wife took that. I think she got me out of bed, and um, hence I got me nighty on. And... <laughs> <laughs> you look, you do look like you've just come out of a teepee, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just got out of bed. You got... I think like... there's lots of boats in the background. I think there must have been some sort of boat race going on that day. Yeah, well, it, cap well. it captures a moment, and and you said that's it. We're going to go with it. that. Yeah, that's it. And that's the and that house was where we recorded the album. We hired the equipment in, and recorded the entire uh, album there. Right, Kenny Jones, a... the Smiths engineer, actually did it. Who yeah. was the engineer? Kenny Jones, who did a lot of the Smiths stuff with John Porter. Right, I've got you. Yes, I can see. But you got quite a few guests on this, didn't you? And you, I have, you... yeah. You got quite a band together, including, um, yeah, Tim Broughton and um, Neil Huckstep as well. So was yeah. was this a band that you formed specifically for this album? No, we've been around. In fact, they were formed, Tim, Neil and Tim, I think they got involved around the time of Mindbox. And we had a live band doing my solo material. To make things even more complicated, we called the band Toybox. But um, we promoted the Mindbox album. Um, and Maggie Ronson um, was singing with the band, then, who still sings with me to this day, who's uh, Mick Ronson's sister. Right. Um, and also in Hunter's Daughter has gone back in vocals on that album as well. Yes. Um, so, um, you know, that, a lot of those people are people that I've known over the years and that's all pulled together to make the record, you know. Right, because uh, Mick's wife's Susie, isn't it? And, yes, that's right, yeah. And the, and the yeah, and, and I, I know. I've worked, um, yes, well, Maggie I've known, that's Mick's sister, for, oh, since the eight, beginning of the 80s. Um, but I know them all. Um, I did a tribute album to Mick that I produced. Um, 
though at least uh, Mick's daughter was involved in that. Yes, because Mick had just died when you bought this album out, hadn't he? That's right, yeah. Because the last one he, album he worked on was about 92. That was Morrissey's Your Arsenal, wasn't it? That's, that's, was, that's right, that was the last thing he did, I think, yeah. Yeah, that was it. That was, yeah. I mean, because yeah. you mentioned a bit earlier that you sort of became part of Bowie's little kind of um, world. Was that mm. his kind of main man period with people like... It was a main man. It was a main man crowd that I kind of knew, you know. Um, Did what, like Tony Sonetta and... and Dyer? Yeah, Tony Sonetta. Yeah, Sonetti. Sonetti, yeah. yeah Son um, and da Dana... And Dana Gillespie. Yes, yeah, so I knew you? them really through Simon and um, initially through Simon. Um, and through them, I met uh, Linda Keith, who was, a, who was a lady who discovered Jimi Hendrix. Oh, yes. Um, a 1960s model who'd been date dating Keith Richards and um, left him for Jimmy. Um, but when I knew her, she just started dating John Porter. So that was the connection there, you see. God, not at all incestuous, is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> God. That's terrible. You think, well, I suppose the music world was quite a small world in those days. Not like today where everybody is, anybody can make a record, can't they? If you've got a laptop and a bedroom, you're away. Yes. Um, yes. Whereas then, you know, the actual record business was pretty small in London. You know? And you had to meet people in those days, didn't you? You had to meet people. There was a lot of pubbing and clubbing and, you know, getting to, you know, which was great, the social side of it as well. I mean, I miss that aspect of it. I mean, a lot of music making these days is quite lonely because everyone's got their own studio at home, you know. Yes, so, that's right. With the Defeat albums with Simon, the recent ones we did, we didn't actually get together until we went to the, the mastering room at the end of it. You know, I didn't see him throughout the whole making of the record. We got together at the end. The, the only time we actually sat down together and listened to it. You know. Yeah. So, so on, on back on this this album, yeah. you you brought in the the Harry Krishnas as a sort of some yeah some vocals. Yeah. Because going to festi going to festivals at this stage in life, you know, one was always hanging out at the the Krishna tent, getting free food, and that's right, and, good and food. Occasionally, as well, yeah. and, and occasionally marching around with them drumming. Yeah, because the lyrics were simple, weren't they at that time? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It was a hit single about on Apple originally. That chant, um, the Hare Krishna chant, I think went top ten. Yes, and in the late sixties, perhaps it was. Yeah, I was on Apple. I remember that. And how did you? And and what, how did you sort of? I think it was through the restaurant in London off of, um, of um, Soho Square. They had a, a vegetarian restaurant there. I think it's still there, actually. And we just asked, you know, would you mind if we were, you know, we took a little portable recorder and recorded them doing that. And then, you know, it's uh, it sampling before the days of sampling, really. We then played the tape into the master tape, as it were, you know, rather than we didn't have any digital sampling in those days. So it was literally a matter of recording it on a bit of quarter inch and then playing that into the track in the studio yes that amazing was... amazing so one because that came out again on humbug and and yeah. sort of this is the kind of height of brit pop and everybody's kind of the john major years really wasn't yes. it yeah, yeah, yeah we 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 look back with great nostalgia now don't we <laughs> and um but then it was, it was he was like, such a colorful character he was such a you know he didn't he didn't let us down after you know, <laughs> the, the, dis, the disappointment that comes next but anyway, that, <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we will reminisce one day about John. 
I don't think it would get that bad. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but um, but then what what sort of come what happens next in your in your recording and musical um, journey? Well, let's have a think because Life, Love, and Liquid that would have been I think that was before we did. Um, I think after that would have been the Bush Tucker project. Yes, because Bush Tucker's be like, right? am I right? But Bush Tucker's about ninety three. This is ninety five. Oh, what Life, Love, and Liquid is ninety five. Yes. Oh right. Okay. So, uh, well, maybe that been sitting around. They must have. I think they were recorded about the same time. To be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and then and then once once those projects were done, I just wondered what was kind of because there's a bit of a gap here, isn't there? There's a huge. There's a gap of about seven years. A I had a daughter. Of... Right. Uh, I was living on the island. Um, you know, and I just I think probably I just felt. I, I mean, I was still writing, still recording and stuff at home, but I didn't put anything out or sort of really raised my head above the parapet for, for quite some time after that, I think seven years. And then came the advent of computer recording. And then I thought, I've got all these tapes that I've amassed during the seven years. I can now put all these onto a computer and start rejigging them and making something out of them. So I did, and that's when I started my own label. Um, so this took a while, which was like the early 2000s, by the time I got anything out. I yes. put called Fear of Flying, which was a right mismatch. It was kind of a kind of a bit of everything, then a very long album with a bit of everything on it. Um, almost an experiment, really. I put that out. But um, but in the meantime, I was still doing the odd session. I was still doing sessions for as a singer. So I did some singing, funny enough, with the pretty things and some singing with Kate Bush, probably some singing with Simon Turner. So I did do the odd session, but I stopped putting records out, basically. Yes. Um, and, sorry, and I was going to say, you know, obviously that was um, fear of flying, and then, but then a few years next, and then you really work quite hard, you mm. know, with the desire path beside yourself, and then you yeah. get into quite a rhythm here, don't you? Release, which carries on to this day. I've got one out next week as well, so um, you know, I'm putting probably an album out a year now. Um, I just don't. It's funny. I, I'm just getting. It's not like the inspiration's running out. It's going the other way. It's almost like I've got so much to do. I've got to get it all in. You know? Yes, absolutely. But does so? Do you? You when you say you do remastering, is this kind of people like Cherry Red Records? Yes, that kind of thing. Small independent labels um, come to me and say, with a, some horrible old tape that's been completely chewed up, and say, "Can you make this sound like something? You know, we want to put it out again on vinyl." You know? So I clean them up and, you know, make right. them and, yes. and they go off to be recut into vinyl. Because there's, there's a lot of little labels now appearing. There's there's a guy, the Precious Recordings of London, he's getting these John Peel sessions and from the 80s and 90s and he's putting sure. those out. And then there's all these other little bits and pieces. There's Optic Nerve Records, who's based in Preston, bizarrely, who are finding obscure bands from the 80s. So is it is it that kind of gig that people... It's that kind of thing. I've just done a huge compilation for Glass Records, which is um, covers of, of songs from the early years of Glass, of how the bands have done. Um, yeah, I mean, it is mainly, though. I mean, I've just done some stuff for Fuzz Club Records. Have you heard of Fuzz Club? No, Fuzz Club. Um, they have a band called The Telescopes, which I think were on Creation at one point. Oh, yes, I remember The Telescopes. That's right. So I've done two albums already for them this year. One is a reissue and one's a brand new album. Um, they'll do that. And I had some old sort of folk albums that were on Polydor and things like that. that I've been reissued. I mean, I enjoy but, all that. That's the engineer sort of side of me. 
And yeah. do you have your own studio for that? that I have my do? own studio at home, yes. So, so you own. can just go and get them. And do you do things, because I've heard this term, baking, uh, baking the tape. Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, well, what happens with old tape is that there's obviously the oxide on the tape over the years dries out and basically falls off the tape. And if, if it goes too far, the tape is unplayable um, or you try and play it, it'll fall apart on the machine. So what they do is they, I don't have one here, but they go off to a place to be baked, yeah. Um, and then it's like, you can't put it in your oven. It wouldn't really work. <laughs> it's not that basic. <laughs> no, it's temperature controlled. <laughs> uh, take, it takes them quite a few days or so. That's mark seven. Yeah, yeah. And then they only get one, you only get one shot of it. Once it's been uh, baked, you run the tape once and obviously preserve it onto a digital format. Because chances are you're going to play it again just fall apart yeah my god that must be enough time to get the music and and has there ever been a moment which when it didn't work or has yeah, it always definitely yeah in fact one of my old, old own masters that happened with it was on we couldn't um you know no amount of baking with the, with this thing it's completely falling apart yeah. yeah i mean with your archives then do, is it a case that you're trying to get as much preserved as possible but there's occasional yeah. Do you yeah, have to... yeah I, I think well what it was i think glass came to me about reissuing something and um eventually when i found the tape and we had a look at it i said it's bad it'd have to be baked you know and it was baked but um even that didn't really do it, it just sounded awful so you know it probably got damp over the years which is you know the enemy of magnetic tape is, is moisture really yes oh, and, and and lots of stuff and all the joints come apart as well that's the other thing that happened yeah, because then your last album that you'd bought out before this new one, this is Moon Moonglow Man. Oh no, there's a, yeah, there's a, that's right. There's been another one since then. Uh, last year there was one called uh, Terra Incognita. That's right. Moon, that Moonglow Man was I think two years ago. Um, yep. Um, but then last year I did one which was very much like how I started. It's almost like a toy boxy kind of album. I'm playing pretty well everything on it, and. Um, it's a mixture of kind of folk and, and it's a mixture of everything really. It's got electric instruments, but it's also quite folky at times. Got a lot of sitar on it, rather like head. head and like that. But, um, so now I've moved on from there and I'm going to put out a straightforward 1950s rock and roll album next. And, and again, it's a holiday. And did you play everything on it? Uh, what, on the rock and roll one or on the last one? No, on the on the new rock and roll one. Um, no, I, I've got a band on that one. But, uh, again with Maggie Ronson singing as well, um, and it's a straightforward nineteen fifties band. I mean, upright bass, drums, piano, guitar. You know. Have you um, ever sort of? I really wanted after doing all my own stuff, which is often quite complicated and technical. I thought I decided to do something that's a bit of fun, you know, yeah. just sing rather than you know have to worry about all the rest of it. You know, so because you seem to be incredibly. You know, because a lot of people, especially if, you know, the music world industry, is, mm. is it leaves a lot of people kind of confused and slightly bitter. But you've never, you've never had that kind of. Feeling. No, I, I, probably because I've just refused to sort of settle into any kind of niche. I didn't, I don't like the the music business. But, you know, I'm quite happy where I am now, running my own label and dealing with people directly. And you know, I'll probably sell less records now, but I. I don't need to sell as many because, I, you know, the money comes to me, not to the record company. So I yes. can survive doing this. I'm, I'm in a happy place in that respect. Um, but I think part of the reason I, I don't, my profile isn't, isn't higher is that it is because I sort of keep leapfrogging genres. You know, I never do two albums in a row that are anything like 
The other side, if you yeah. like one of my albums, you might go and buy the next one and hate it because it's nothing like the one you liked. <laughs> but it has never bothered me, you know. I just think, you know, if that's where my muse is taking me, I just follow my muse. I think you, everything else would lead to great unhappiness. Yeah, well, I think, I don't know, was it Brian Eno and people like David Bowie were often talking about working outside your comfort zone, you know, and yes. unless, unless you're a little bit out of your depth, what you're doing exactly. isn't, isn't going to be that good in the end. No, no, you're basically going to re be remaking the same album and not as good as the first time round. And mm -hmm. I, I, that always scared me. I didn't ever want to do that. So that's why I do tend to sort of jump, you know, genres. Because we just because looking at your band campaign, good times again. Is this just a collection of stuff? This isn't the new album. No, that's a collection of singles. What I do is occasionally I put out a, a digital single, um, usually tracks that I, I haven't got a home for. They wouldn't sit anywhere on an album that I'm making. They're slightly different to again. They're different to the other stuff that I do. I call I call them standalones. Yeah. So really, like a single, you know. Um, and then occasionally I pull all these singles together and put them out as a compilation. So Good Times Again is a compilation of singles. Right. And and the singles look no hands and totem pole. Were these the singles that just floated? They just odd tracks that aren't on all the singles aren't on any of my albums. Um, they're done as standalone tracks. Um, but then I gather them together and put them on a compilation. Blimey O'Reilly, it all starting to make sense. This is a very interesting, exciting world, isn't it? Yeah. Oh and and the, the album that you did, Terry, uh, Terra Incognito, this, oh, yeah. you've got the sleeve. Oh, it's by Peter. Peter Rodolfo, yeah. Who I, who I think you know, do you? Yes. God, that is, a quite, an, uh, that is quite an amazing sleeve, isn't it? It's beautiful. Uh, uh, to, they are, they're big sized paintings. He did huge pictures. That, they illustrate the front of the back. There's no font or um, writing on the front or back of the seat. It's just Pete's painting. Um, and they're scenes. That album is, is conceptual. It tells a story. So they're scenes from the story that he's painted uh, to illustrate what the songs are all about. You know? Right. Um, so you like you do like your odd concept album, don't you? I do. I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a one for a concept album. <laughs> <laughs> often doesn't start that way but then I find when I've once I've got a couple of tracks going I'm thinking oh the, I, you know these are kind of linked and uh, then did, I follow that particular path you know. did space was space a particularly big thing in your your life well I think that's probably from yeah growing up with sci-fi black and white sci-fi movies all that kind of stuff and then of course the 70s where space was very big wasn't it yeah um, we had things like dark and star and all that and then David Bowie of course and all that you know so of course space has always been a, a big thing you know? so when you when you start to sort of get that kind of spark of inspiration is it easier for you to sort of focus on one particular go down one yeah i think that's probably a, it probably is a writing trick but that's why they end up conceptual because yeah once i've got the first couple of things down it flows because i've got my subject matter i know where the story or whatever is going you know or what i want to say in the song so that's half the hard work taken out of it then, you know, then it's just a matter of inspiration. Trying to find, you know, yeah. And are you still playing live occasionally or have you? Hardly ever. Hardly ever. I mean, I always have been in the studio. I mean, I did all the gigging in the 80s because um, it's funny. I was looking at your um, previous interviews and uh, I noticed that the guy from Wasted Youth. Yes. Now, that was just was such a memory job when I saw he was there because I used to play gigs with him um with my own band but with wasted you 
uh, Canning Town. In the, in the East. And I think his dad or one of their dads owned the pub. The pub and they had the well? label, didn't they? Yes. Yeah, they had. That's right, they did. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I was doing a tour, I think, where there was a company called Small Wonder, I think they were called, who were like promoters, and we were in their books. And they seemed to put on wasted years of age. Yeah, that was Ken, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and felt. I saw you did an interview with Lawrence. Lawrence. Yeah, I mean, people <laughs> I know from, yeah. yeah so good old Lawrence. All I know all, all the slightly mad people there. I, well, I thought, oh, this is good. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was funny. Up my about, David, <laughs> because Ken, because Ken had he one of their albums for Wasted Youth was produced by the famous Manchester guy Martin. Uh, Martin, is it Russian? Who did the? Yeah, David? I think so. Russian, 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 something. Yeah, I know. yeah, and that was one of those ones where he was laying on the floor, drunk, saying, "Just, just push that button up a bit, and then yeah, collapse yeah. again." So their yeah, experience yeah. with work with Martin was a bit. He said he'd had his best days. I thought, mm, yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is it. You know, it's such a common story, isn't it? That, and it's not fair because they're there to record, aren't they? And the guy should be. Together Should be able to sit on the seat. <laughs> the one, the one producer that everyone loved was Hugh Jones. Oh, Hugh not, Jones. not the guy who worked with the Beatles. Hugh Johnson. Oh no, no yeah, Glenn Johns. Glenn Johns. They're Hugh Jones. He's one of these guys. Everyone said he just he would work twenty four seven. He'd just have fags, and didn't eat, and just right. would work. He'd work. That in. sounds like me. That's my style. I don't, my wife always jokes, I don't eat when I'm in the studio. Nothing yes. goes for days. <laughs> so, so it was this guy, he, you know, and his CV, I mean, he's still alive, which boggled me because they said he just smoked all the time. And I thought, yeah. the one thing, did you manage to avoid, apart from your psychedelics, did you manage to avoid every, the other things that are more likely no, to kill I've you? I've always been partial. I mean, even to this day, all right, if someone offers me a split, I'll smoke it, you know, if I'm in the mood, you know. Um, <laughs> But um, and I am a smoker anyway, so yeah, I haven't avoided any of it really. Um, <laughs> and yes. Simon Fisher Turner and myself were quite keen drinkers in our day as well, so we drank a lot as well. As did everybody else. As, yes, I mean it, it was very, it would have been unusual not to really. So, exactly, like, everything happened in the pubs, you know. It did all happen there with lots of yeah. smoke. So, so with the new album, what's the new album called? The new one coming out, um, actually, at the end of this week, is called Jukebox. So I'm back on the box thing, David. You're back I've on the toy box. box, mine box, and then I thought it's about time I did another. So I've got Jukebox. As I say, it's 1950s inspired, uh, basic rock and roll. But well, I, I say that, but it's not. Uh, that makes it sound like prestige. It's not prestige. I, they're my own songs, and lyrically, I, they're very much in keeping with the way I normally write. Maybe with a bit more humour than I would normally allow in my name songs but um but they are basic boogie woogie uh, tracks which has just been great fun you know? yes i've tried to make them interesting lyrically and in the arrangements you know so they're not straight kind of copies um but that's the i wanted it to smell of the 1950s that was the idea and how did you manage to sort of encompass um... well i used all 1950s microphones 1950s amplifiers um so as much of the technology that I could get, obviously 1950s guitars and drum kit, uh, upright bass. So already the sound was kind of there. The minute you have those instruments going through that technology, you're suddenly in sort of Joe Meatland, you know, which I yes. love that kind of stuff, you know. Um, 
So it was a bit of a challenge, and I tried to make it kind of sound slightly more modern, but it, you know, it's always going to have that flavour, which is what I was after. Um, so yeah, that's how it was done. It was done using the technology of the day. Um, so it was a learning curve because, of course, I hadn't used all that stuff. No, Not, and, and but but sort of bringing the lyrics together. What what was your now, the lyrics? Yeah, was an interesting one because I thought. Yeah, I don't want to, because rock and roll songs, that's his problem. It was rather restrictive. I, I've listened to a lot of rock, and they, they usually boy meets girl, boy falls out with girl. You know, we all know that the yeah. standard thing, kind of misogynistic rock and roll <laughs> thing. Yes. I don't particularly want to go there. You know? no, yeah. So what I did was, uh, rather than what I did with Toy Box, with Toy Box, I wanted the songs on that sounded like, to the casual listener, would sound like nursery rhymes. But if you listen to, you know, they sounded innocent and sort of slightly Sid Barrett-y, that kind of thing, you know, Donovan, that kind of thing. But if you listen more carefully, there was a dark side to it. There was always a very dark, dark tale going on. It wasn't what it appeared. So I tried to apply the same thing to the 1950s rock and roll. So on the surface, they're boy meets girl type songs, but then there's always something wrong with the girl, or there's something wrong with the girl, or she's running away from, the, from a religious cult yes. or... You know, I've just made it darker and more unusual. Did you ever did you ever slip into that kind of Berlin 1930s Weimar Republic kind of vibe? Well, yeah. <laughs> I just did a, a David J album actually uh, from Bauhaus, the guy from Bauhaus, and he's definitely in that world, um, <laughs> really completely. I mean, I loved all that kind of stuff, you know. Maybe that's my next one, David. Maybe I'll do one later. Well, it was funny because I did go and see Barry Humphreys once about oh, yeah. five years ago with a band he was playing with called Meow Meow, who was oh, kind of, she was a very cabaret kind of singer. And yeah. he loved the work of the sort of 20s, 30s Berlin by Mark Republic. And obviously yeah. that's all about seediness, isn't it? And yes, someone, it, and it, someone it, being stabbed. Yeah, well, that's well, right. The sort of dark know. side, and they did that brilliantly. Then, yeah, yeah, that's a good thought. I should, maybe I should do something like that. It's definitely, it's definitely there for another project. Actually, yeah, for another, I yeah, mean, for obviously, something. you know, you've got the the mastering work, which is, you know, obviously very important. Then your solo stuff. Do you have an idea of what your next album will be like after this, after the rock? Yes, it's going to be nineteen thirties Berlin. Actually. <laughs> 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 yes, we can. No back. idea. I get this one out first. Well, actually, I'm going to be doing a Defeat album with Simon first. So there's another Defeat album coming out. So right, we just and started. Then... We've literally just started working on that. So that will keep me going right up to the end of the summer. Yes. And in the meantime, I'll be probably getting ideas about what I want to do next. You know. Will Will also this the 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 one with Simon is that coming out on Sapphire Records as well? Uh, no, I think that'd be another, probably, well, the last one, the fee went out on glass, so we may stay with glass again, I don't know yet. Uh, what, what happens is we do the album, then we license the master tape. Did you uh, meet many of the people who were on glass records in those early days? Like, was it a guy called Epic, and um, who was that? Um, I met the, most of them, actually. Um, the Rock and Rollers, who unfortunately have all passed Grace away. Man 3, I remember them being around. Yes, and... Um, Else, or the pastels, I remember, yeah. I mean, Dave Barker um, had his office in his house, which was actually about where I was living in London at the time. Um, so I was often around there, so I would have met a lot of the people there. Um, yes. Oh, who was oh, Jazz Butcher, of course. The Jazz, oh, he was always around, yeah. He was, he was a, he was a legend, really, the Jazz Butcher. Well, he, apparently so. I didn't really, you know, 
I've done remastered quite a lot of his stuff. Um, oh, it was people like Nicky Sudden. Oh, Nicky, I remember, yeah, yeah, I remember him, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Jacobites and those Jacobite, guys. Jacobites, that's right, yeah, yeah, who, yeah. Oh, oh, unfortunately passed away. But That's right, yeah. Did you ever get to meet or work with any of them, or was there... I met most of them, because they were around either at Dave Barker's or, in fact, at Cherry Red as well. Um, no, I don't think I've worked with them. I worked with the go-betweens who were around, but they were a slightly different thing, because they were Australian. Um I did singing on their album for them, uh, but that was for um, Beggar's Banquet, I think. Yes, that's right. So you would have met the famous Robert Forster and... Uh, yeah, yeah. I went to many a party. I had a lot of good... Well, that was a great session, actually. Me and Simon sang backing vocals. Right, uh, with those guys. Were you yeah, just really good? Because quite a few of the bands, you know, especially those early years, were quite into the pretty heavy hard drug scene were you quite good with your psychedelia scene instead well i was quite good really i was always very controlled i mean maybe because i'm going from a slightly earlier generation i was always told that there was a kind of ritual that you went through when you took psychedelics and that you always had someone there that was straight in case anybody had problems and, you know we yes. were kind of quite kind of you know disciplined about it um and so i learned very well very early on and it didn't last very long, that period. I and mean, it was an interesting period. And mm. I, I've, I've had the odd trip since. I don't think I'd do it again now. But, um, you know, but, you know, I was quite, I think, really, I was. I, I could have been worse. I mean, as you say, a lot of people are dead. And I'm still here, so. You know. Yes. Yeah. Did you ever get into that kind of Hawkwind kind of phase as well in life? Or did that kind of pass you by? I mean, I was aware of Hawkwind. Um, I did like a couple of their records, but... Um, uh, no, I'd never really, I was never a huge fan. I mean, I've got a whole Queen album or two, I think, somewhere in my collection, but um, yes. it doesn't get played very often, I'm afraid. <laughs> no, Are you into no. that? Well, a little, I suppose it was kind of those sort of bands that, you know, were a little bit on the psychedelic front, weren't they? Yeah, they were, yeah, they were a kind of, And they, I mean, they had an amazing, they had an amazing, some of the musicians were just incredible, like Simon Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and the David Brock was very good. That's but, right. Yeah, that I just was some really good. Yeah, and of course Gong were around, weren't they? And um, Osric Tentacles and, and all those bands. Yeah, yeah, all those. So, bands. Yes. Yeah, I like that. So if you, I mean, obviously you left school at 15, 16. I mean, if you could have whispered something to yourself at that age as you were kind of starting out, yeah. even if that person would have ignored you, is there anything that you would have just whispered? God, oh, I would have done this, or I would, I would focus well, I, on. Yeah, there is actually. There's something I definitely would have said to myself, which is, don't try to be a rock and roll star. Because at the time, I probably wanted, like most kids of that age who were into music, I wanted to be the new David Bowie or the new whatever, you know, like we all did, you know, we all had ambitions and all that. But yeah. very quickly, I learned, having met people that really were rock and roll stars, that it wasn't all that it was painted to be. And I realised that wasn't what I wanted in life at all. I wanted to make music and all the rest of it, but I didn't want everything that came with it. Uh, you, know, I, you know, I got to see that, fortunately. Uh, and, you know, so then that probably that's why I became very independent and not, you know, because I, I, you know, when you're younger, you've always been courted by major labels and the whole things about getting the deal, getting the money, some of the ridiculous advance. And, but basically, they own you. I mean, just ask Matt Johnson about this. You know, he's still in legal cases with CBS all these years later, you know. And uh, so, um, and he, like me, wanted to be a pop star, you know. But yeah, so if I could have said that to myself, is forget the idea of being a pop star, just concentrate on being a musician. Oh, yes, because that, 
this book came out last well this year called, oh right okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Steve and steve-o and, Steve and matt must um speak yeah. feathers when he thinks of steve-o well i think they've uh, i don't think they get on too great anymore <laughs> <laughs> did you see Matt's book? Um, well, the autobiography, not the autobiography, the biography, um, Long Shadows and High Hopes. No, I didn't. Is that? That's worth a, worth a read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. came out yeah. a few years ago. Okay, because I, I I think the last time I saw or came across him, he was in hospital, looking like he was having a major... Oh, that was horrible, wasn't it? And that thing on his throat. Yeah, yeah, it's horrible. So, I'm all right now. But yeah, you had to have it removed, yeah. Yeah. But really, he put a picture of himself. I thought, why did you put... I know. Through my breakfast. I know, it was too much. Are you, still in, are you still in touch with Matt? Yes, we're still friends. We see each other regularly, yeah. yeah nice. Too. Well, I'm glad that, um, yes, I know. The, the the problem with signing that record deal, wasn't it, really? Well, you know, so it's, but now he's happy. He's got his own label. I did some, I did do some singing. Um, he did a triple album. Nothing like being ambitious, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Radio Cineola. Um which and he had other people singing his songs. I was one of the people sung one of his songs for that. Which was all filmed apparently went out as a movie, although I've never seen the movie. But. Were you amazed when you heard This Is the Day and some of those singles that he brought out, The Beaten Generation? Well, yeah, um, I wasn't amazed because I've known Matt so well. It's difficult when you know somebody that well to be surprised, you know. Um, although I thought this is this is the day was a nice song. Um yeah, I'm always pleased if, if I like it, you know. And I, yeah. But it's always, you know, it's different when it's someone you know. Because it's very hard to hear it as an outsider. The hours I've spent recording Matt in the studio, and it's like, you know, it's his voice is sort of, in, you know, printed in my brain somehow. You know, so. <laughs> yeah, so you're probably thinking, yeah. Well, so I'm not hearing it like, like a punter might hear it, you know. Yes, romantically kind of. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. I think I was my mate Matt having, doing a yeah. song. Who's <laughs> getting a bit soppy and a bit sentimental here? <laughs> exactly. Well, be too I'm sure he says the same with you. Yeah, he probably, yes. He's probably, he's probably like, what are you doing? Yeah, he's probably like, God, Matt. Yeah, anyway, no. <laughs> look, it's good. It's good. Well, look, all the best for the album. I'm looking forward to this. Thank you. Well, I'll send you a copy. If you drop me an address, I'll send you some CDs. Amazing. Thank that you. That would be right. Yeah. yeah, that would be because fantastic. Be, you know, I'm aware a lot of this stuff is not out, so I'll, um, I'll put your little package together. Baby. Oh, you're too kind. But look, and I can send you a link to this as well, and you can. That'd be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I hope you've got enough there. If you need any more, obviously give me a shout. I will. I will. Look, thank but you. It's amazing well. that you've done Simon and so many people that I know. I mean, and John, John Porter. I'm seeing John Porter second week in June. No, first week in June. Oh, John. Um, so I'll mention you. I'll say, Do you yeah. Well, he was so lovely. He's a nice guy, isn't he? Really nice and. You know, it's just kind of funny because you pull this little thread going, oh, that'll be interesting. Oh, that's... Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and it's like you start to... Nice. So well, you, kind now, of, you now yeah. know he married a 1960s model. Yeah. I he did He did tell me a little bit of how his relationship with Johnny he kind of didn't last very... You know, but no, you, but but that, I think John felt that he didn't get the credit because John did play a lot of guitars on a lot of Smith's tracks. And yes. The credit, you know, which is well, a bit I think, crazy, isn't it? I think it was a bit of a shame. And then, you know, 
I think Johnny was like, no, he never did, kind of thing. Yeah, well, Johnny, yeah, that was a bit weird, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it was a bit like, well, I did. I've, yeah, because he I said, think well, Johnny I... had to say that because he'd already said in his book that he claimed that he played various parts that he hadn't actually played, you know. Yeah, bit... and I think, it, you know, he got a bit found out when John went, yeah, that was mine. It was like, well, it's like, what a funny thing to do because you're going to be found out saying that, aren't you, really? Yeah. Well, I think one thing I've noticed, not a lot, but occasionally, you know, with a band, it's like who controls the narrative? You know, their mm. story's there. And it's yeah. like, oh, that's good. And then someone says, well, that's not, not quite, quite right, is yeah, it? Yeah, it yeah, this, yeah. this bit you forgot or you've, you know, yeah, and Johnny, and Johnny obviously did that with, um, I can't remember, it was a famous part of the Catan How Soon Is Now, I think. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah, it is with the tremolo guitar, isn't it? I think. That's and right. and John said, "Well, I went and got the cassette so he could take it on tour to play." You know. Yeah. And that's um, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, yeah. to push play. And John is an amazing guitarist in his own right. You know. And, um, but you know, I think that was weird. But I suppose once you've done said something, you, you can't go back on it, and that's the thing, isn't it? You know? mm -hmm. I think it's a bit of bad feeling about it. I know it was a bit tricky, but anyway, it was John. John was too nice to ever really make a thing about it. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't bothered. I mean, he's you know, but he's he's. It was lovely that he'd he'd had a, this these all these other little moments with people, like I said, with this band with James Lascelles, who yes. I think, and and Mike Story, who were these That's kind right. of like folk jazz musicians. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, he he'd appeared on that playing bass. So you know, I mean, John's highly regarded, and he was living in California. I used to go and stay with him out in LA. And it would be great if you're going off to uh, produce John Lee Hooker in the morning, you know, like we come back tea time. I said, How did it go? And he'd tell me all about the session, you know, and I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> you know, it, uh, yeah, I remember, I remember him telling me because one of the artists I liked from his roster was a blues guy called R.L. Burnside. And oh, yeah, yeah. I said, How yeah. hard was that? And he said, Actually, he was very drunk. It wasn't that good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's John's going to be honest, isn't he? You know. You so, know so, I did do a good buddy guy on in London, actually. I did actually sing on some of that. That was years ago. But, um, damn right, I got the blues. Yeah. Did you did you get to go and see Kate when she did her when she kind of brought that concert? You know, did a, a couple the of recent, gigs. well, the la yeah, the last thing. Yeah, I saw, saw that. I got I got sent tickets for the sit right in the middle and the front at the front. So uh, which was really embarrassing because she gave me a wave when I. <laughs> I was a bit late getting there, and uh, so she waved at me, and about three thousand people waved back at her. <laughs> <laughs> so nice. was, she was lovely because um, I was actually working for Tony Visconti, funny enough, another Bowie connection. I was doing live sound for him for his band, and um, so I was away on tour. So when uh, they said, you know, do you want to come to the gig? I said, I can't. I'm in Glasgow, or whatever. Um, but she had the whole month, didn't she? So they, she said, don't worry, I'll get you the one the late. And they, they arranged, like, it went, I think, when the last night, the night before the last night or something. And uh, yeah, it was lovely, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did you ever see her live when in the 70s? Uh, yeah, I did. I saw her in a pub, actually, before the before she was even famous, doing cover versions um, somewhere in South London, Lewisham or somewhere. Um, but yeah, I did see the tour of life, so one of those gigs, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. They were really over the top. Well, that's kind of what Kate does anyway, isn't it? but um, it was quite amazing. But, yeah. yeah, the Lindsay Kemp stuff was... Lindsay, yeah, yeah, that's right. That, um, yeah. Yeah, he was a man as well. I was like, is he still with us? No, he passed away. Passed, oh my God. You're not making me feel very good, David. I <laughs> know. Oh, sorry about that, but but no, but a lot of people like John Porter, Tony Visconti, even yeah, Tony yeah. DeFries. Oh, Tony I mean, Visconti's really uh, healthy, yeah. And Tony uh, Dana Gillespie, 
Tony. I see. I've done an interview with Tony Sonetta. Who? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, yeah. There's still a lot. Funny enough, I I got very obsessed with those that um, West Coast kind of theatre group called the Coquettes. Who yes, I, yeah, 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 I, yeah, I found kind of fascinating. So yeah, they're, yeah, all, yeah. they're all with us. And and yeah. then there was a kind of a rock and roll psychobilly movement in the late seventies and early eighties with people like the Rockettes. Yeah, yeah, and that was kind of interesting. It yeah. was really interesting, you know, and yeah. they because they knew a guy called Lee. Oh, Lee, uh, three pair barrels. No, I remember Lee. Lee, no, Lee Black Childers, who was Lee Black guy. Childers, who did the painting on the inside of Diamond Dogs, didn't he? Yeah, um, so yeah, well, and he was always around the Bowie crowd. He was part of the main man. Thing, he was he? part of that kind of scene. He was he a kind was, of. I got very drunk with him once. Did you? Yeah, extremely drunk in in, in Knightsbridge, I think. Yeah, it sounds delightful. He was quite a nice guy. We had a laugh. Yeah. And of course, Jane County, Wayne County, as he was then, was around. Oh yes, and and he, she's still going. So, um, well, I think it's yeah, it's still going. Yeah, yeah. 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 Anyway, so, yeah, well, it really is a small world, David. Blimey. It's tiny, isn't it? Anyway, yeah. look, I'll let, let you get on. I better. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed the moon this month. That was very oh, nice. Oh yeah, I know, fantastic. You know what? We saw the space station. That was incredible. Such a the last full moon, so bright. I mean, I've seen the space station before, and it just looks like a star, doesn't it? Normally, just kind of, but this you could actually see the shape of it because the moon was reflecting off it. It was amazing. Yeah, I said, Is that the space station? It was like it looked like something out of a science fiction movie. Yeah, you see all the bits sticking out, and just incredible. Did you just lastly? Did you get very excited in about 1998 when we saw Hell Bob or Helly Bob? Oh, did actually? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, the comet. <laughs> yeah, that, that was I, I, find, I must admit that I find that absolutely. That was the first mind. time it had been seen, isn't it? But since you know, two hundred, what's ten? Bio tapestry or something? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I was on the island, of course, and there were no lights. It's because it's a private island, so that I had no light pollution. So we had fantastic night skies, anyway. <laughs> I remember that. just, I used to be at the gate, the garden gate, looking up, thinking, God, that's... It and it looked like something out of a picture book. It's like how you imagine a comic to look, didn't it? With the tail and everything. Yeah. I've forgotten about that. I shall remind the wife about that. Remember and just go, what year was that? And, and, and yeah. tell her, and oh, she'll yeah. go, I I'll, I'll, I'll amaze her with, with my knowledge. Hallibop. <laughs> Hell, Bob. Anyway, look, on that bombshell. Look, yeah. take care and thank you. Lovely to meet you. Fantastic. Yeah, don't forget, drop me your address. I'll get some CDs. Oh, yeah, I will. Okay, thanks okay. a lot. All right. Well, I hope, yeah, and anything else you need, mate, just give us a shout. I will. Thanks, Colin. All right, thanks. Cheers. Have bye a good bye. night. See you later. Bye-bye. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. Uh, I'm sure you could have guessed that. Anyway, look, a massive thank you to Colin Lloyd Tucker for giving me the time for that interview. This has been the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me for some interesting reason, or just lovely, uh, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do the C86 Show. You can always um, drop me a, I think people go on about sort of a comment, a positive kind of feedback in the comment section. You can, if you want to, I'm not sure. That just seems a bit needy now. Anyway, look, also, all these interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.